Welcome to the Plain Ordinary Dragon Podcast. We're so glad you're here today. You know, time's the most precious resource that any of us have, and the fact that you're here with us right now is humbling, and we never take it for granted. We're glad to have you here. We really, really are. And we're going to do kind of a retrospective again of season two, uh, if you will. I just took some excerpts from our different interview guests in season two and put them into this this show because I thought there were some things that I wanted to pull out and, and kind of wrap up season two with, even though I started season three last week. So uh, here it is. And we're going to start things off with Tom Serzak, who tells us about his journey in the business world. And I hope you pay special attention to how he looks for opportunities and then exploits them to his benefit. Couldn't get a job. Really? So I was like in, I was like Frank Zappa's song. I wound up working in a gas station. I uh, I, I worked in a gas station at West Point for about know, six months. I think the guy saw me and he says, we need somebody to do the accounting. So he put me in the accounting department real quick. <laughs> he said, uh, have, me, have me up there. And I'm like, I, I got to find something. And uh, I went on an interview with Burroughs Computer, which was the big competitor to IBM at the time. Mm-hmm. And I got a job. So I I, I wound up uh, working for Burroughs for a year, which was fantastic because it was the first time I'd ever gotten on an airplane. They said, well, we're going to have to send you to sales school. And sales school's in, in Nine Mile Road. Road, one over uh, in um, in Detroit. So we flew out to Detroit for three weeks, and oh my God, that was one of the greatest experiences I ever oh, yeah. had. I mean, first of all, it's a sales school type of thing, but I'm also in Detroit where I've never been, and it was just it was just a total blast. I had so much fun. I'll never forget that trip. So I wound up working with Burroughs, but they assign you uh, you're either going to be calling on manufacturing or you're going to be calling lean on like banks and schools. Burroughs dominated the bank and school market at the time. They gave me manufacturing. <laughs> and I'm in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Uh-huh. And there's only one big manufacturer in the in the Mid-Hudson Valley. And that was IBM. Uh-huh. And everybody is related to IBM. And I'm like, I'm never going to sell anything here because, you know, yeah. everybody's brother or sister works for IBM. I, I, they're they're going to control everything. So I lasted about a year there. And I wound up getting this job with a small little distributor in Newburgh, New York, that was selling German light bulbs. Within a year and a half, the parent company from Germany, name was Osram, bought the company and all of a sudden became Osram Sales. So now I'm working with a German company. And Osram was one of the top three companies in the world. Mm-hmm. So, and they wound up buying Sylvania and became Osram Sylvania. I mean, they became really, really huge. Yeah, sounds like it. So what happened was they said, ah, you know, we need a West Coast office. Tom, why don't you pack up your Volkswagen and move to San Francisco and start up our West Coast office? And I think I'm like 22, 23 years old. And I'm like, absolutely. You want me to drive to San Francisco and start an office? I'm gone. So so I took off to San Francisco. And, oh, my gosh, was that a lot of fun. Talk about fear and loathing. Uh, I'll bet. And there's nothing better than being the opposite coast to where the the main office is. So, because you know, you don't have anybody watching you. I go to you. work. They're, go- <laughs> they're going to lunch, you know. And, and then when they come from come back, I go to lunch. And when I get back, they're going for the day. I, I just never talked to these guys. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> 
I learned a lot. I mean, because when you're out by yourself, it's either sink or swim. You either you either succeed or you fail. So I thought I did a pretty decent job for them. Uh, but I got the impression they wanted me to go back to the East Coast after about four years. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go back to the East Coast. I was like, I, I like it out here. So I, I got in touch with this Japanese company I knew called Ushio. And the Japanese guy there said, you know, I was looking to go back to Japan and we're looking for a replacement. Why don't you come on down and interview with us? So I go down and interview with uh, these Japanese guys. And they said, you're, you're perfect for us. We want you to run the company. What? And I'm like, now I'm like 30 years old. Right. So now I'm running the United I'm running this whole company for for the United States. It was a small little company. It was about two million dollar company. It was me and one girl. And the whole thing was like stone soup. Every time, you know, I, I wanted to do something, couldn't do it. Can't do it. No money. Blah blah blah. Right. Like how am I, you know, I, how am I going to pull this off? So eventually, I, I, I use a stone soup strategy. I just started adding everything one at a time. I said, gee, it would be really nice if I had a sales guy on the East Coast because, you know, I use that same story about half the day is gone. You know, by the time you know you you get started, they're done. Right. And you know, after we get home from lunch, they're gone. We need a guy that's there all the time. I said, okay. And it's like, you know, I I need a guy on the in in Chicago. And again, same story. Okay. And so brick by brick by brick by brick, I built up the sales and the inside team from two people to 200 people, from $2 million to $100 million. And, wow. And I was the guy in charge. I was the guy in charge doing it all. And um, I don't think that there was a lot of bumps in the road on that one because, you know, I, I was traveling all over the world. I was going to, you know, Japan and, you know, we bought companies in Germany and I had to go to Germany and Amsterdam. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff in addition to hiring the people. In 2007, I had been there 23 years. I could have coasted and just rode into the sunset because, I mean, the company's really doing very good. But no, I get it in my brain that I had a, a friend of mine that wanted to sell his business in Tokyo. <laughs> it's an Ikibukuro in Tokyo. And he said, Tom, I, I need I need to retire. I've got some health issues. I think you would be perfect to buy this business. You know, it's, it's perfect for you. You know all the little companies over here in Japan. They know who you are. And uh, I, I think you're like the guy that could, you know, take it and grow it. And I was like, why not? What do I got to gain? I'm like 50 years old now. So I, I buy this company in Tokyo. And then, then I really started working. I bet you did. <laughs> because I started having to go back and forth. I went back and forth to Tokyo every month for two weeks. So I would do two weeks in Tokyo, six weeks in the States, two weeks in Tokyo, and I did that for four years. So you had some frequent flyer miles. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, trust me. It was like a commuter flight. I mean, it's a 13-hour flight over there, right? Wow. We'd have to go to Narita Airport, so it's, then it's another hour bus ride into, into town, right? So it was a long, long day. And uh, so I did that for, for a while, and I was like, I can't take this anymore. I sold the Japanese part and just kept the American part. And uh, so it's a nice little business that I've been you know, doing since 2007. And, uh, but I've been in this lighting world, and it's especially lighting world mostly, since I've been 23. So most of my friends, most of the people I know are all from the lighting world because that's all I've ever done. And I don't care whether it's here, whether it's Australia, whether it's Germany, whether it's 
Italy, whether it's Korea, they're all my friends. I've known these people for years and years and years now. It's, it's like 40 years I've been doing mm -hmm. this. I'm going to take a turn now. All right. So when I wound up going to Steve Earle's Camp Copperhead, mm -hmm. it put me into a whole different world. Yeah. So my whole world had been nothing but lighting. I descended into a world of nothing but musicians, nothing but songwriters. And I was like, I found my people. <laughs> this is the lost tribe. Yeah. Pretty amazing, huh? Tom, like Tom says, don't think there weren't bumps in the road. I mean, he took a company from basically $2 million a year in revenue to $100 million in revenue. That's impressive. But remember, his business career started with a business major in college because he didn't want to take a language course. Something I always notice when I hear Tom's story is how he finds opportunities in front of him. Can't find anything in business and sales world? No problem. He just goes to work at a gas station and he works his way up. And then he gets an opportunity to do sales and eventually buys the business. Competence and a strong work ethic will take you places you can only imagine. Make sure you check out his new CD, Call Me Ishmael. It's really good. Like, honestly, I listen to it all the time in the car. If you want to win one, you can shoot me an email. Shoot me an email and I'll tell you what you need to do. If you want to listen to Tom's whole episode, you can do so at, on Season 2, Episode 28 of the show. So next up, we're going to hear from Rob Appleblatt, Splat, on his humble beginnings. Let's listen. I was born, they didn't have a crib, so they, uh, they had a dresser. And so maybe this was common back in 1968 or whatever, but, you know, the bottom drawer on the dresser, basically, you know, you take all the clothes out and put a little blankie in there, and that was my crib. So I lived in a trailer uh, in, a desk, in, a, in a dresser drawer <laughs> with rats uh, crawling in the walls of the, of the trailer. Rob went on to own his own businesses and create a board game, and he just released his first album. At the end of a really great episode, there, I mean, there was so much good stuff in Rob's episode, but I digress. He basically tells us at the end of the episode why he's been able to be successful at navigating life. Uh, let's give it a listen. I think he says it best. Well, yeah, sure. I mentioned, uh, I guess I mentioned to you earlier, I said, ask me about the snakes. So I might as well, as long as they came back to me. You know, when I was a kid, I had a phobia, a horrible phobia of snakes. And I can remember waking up in the middle of the night, uh, many, many nights, and thinking that snakes were going to get me. You know, they're under my bed. So no matter what time it was, I would stand on my bed and I would take a running two-step leap off my bed so I could jump as far away from the snakes as I could. And uh, I'd never seen a snake or anything, but, you know, fast forward now to when I went to SUNY Albany and I was, you know, uh, my first year of college, second year of, of college. And this guy comes to introduce himself and he walks in my room and he's got a snake around his neck. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a snake in real life. And he's like, hey, man, how you doing? I'm Mike. And, and I just I just froze and every single hair on my whole body just stood up and I think I just screamed at the top of my lungs and jumped on my bed like, you know, like a, a it's just a scared kid. And I was just like, get out, get out, get out, you know, uncontrollable, you know, fear. And he's like, all right. You know, it was it was a little garter snake. It wasn't like it was anything, but I was completely terrified. And I remember it took like hours for me to just get my composure back. I was just 
rocked from within. And then uh, I remember a couple of weeks later, I was at the the mall with my roommate, and um, we were in the pet store, and I was just found myself transfixed at a garter snake in a glass tank. And I was it was the first time I was like inches from the thing. And I was just watching it move. And I was just, how does this thing move with no legs? And I'm watching the muscles all move. And I was just in awe. And he, my, my buddy said, just buy it, man. It's 20 bucks. And I just felt this sense of empowerment that I'm now an adult. I'm at college. I have $20 in my wallet. And I'm terrified of this thing. And I just went on a whim. And I just bought the thing. And so we brought it back to my dorm room. You know, it comes with like two clips on the tank. I bought like four sets of extra clips and I got home to my room and I had clips all around each edge and I put my weights on top of, it's funny, it was comical. I had this little tank and I had weights on top of it, clips all around it, and then books on top of the weights. I mean, it looked comical. I had stuff, you know, piled yay high. And I slept with a flashlight. And I remember the first, you know, few weeks, I just wake up in a panic in the middle of the night, shine the flashlight to make sure it was still in there and it didn't get out. And over the course of uh, six months, I had a friend come and feed it. And while I'd clean the tank, they would hold the snake. And eventually I would pet the tail. Eventually I'd hold the tail. And eventually I got to the point where I would hold the snake. And, you know, it, it took about six months, but I, I literally got over a phobia uh, that was so bad in six months. And and then I gave the snake away to somebody and I, I bought a, a more beautiful, colorful snake called the corn snake as a baby that I saw. And that snake ended up having some sort of um, parasite and it died. And uh, so that led me on this sort of, well, why did it die? And so I started reading up on, on reptile parasites and things. and. And then I was on a vacation in, in Florida, and I walked into a pet store, and, and I was talking to the salesperson, and, and the salesperson said, hey, I got this great snake. You got to see it. And he pulled out this boa constrictor and put it in my hands, and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And so I bought the snake and flew home to, Flo to, to New York with it in my sweatshirt pocket on the airplane without telling them that I had a boa constrictor in my pocket which was was crazy. And and so slowly this this fear turned into an obsession. And I used to volunteer some time at a snake breeder uh, on Long Island and he bred these uh, huge Burmese pythons, which is one of the largest snake in, snakes in the world. And they were albino and for working for him he 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 sold me a, a male and a female albino uh, Burmese python breeding pair. And I grew them up as fast as I could by feeding them a lot to get them to be over 10 feet in 18 months. And they were fast-growing snakes, you know. I had them as a breeding project. And so I, I bred these, these snakes. I think I had 35 eggs or something in 18 months. And the female was, like, as fat as my leg and, you know, probably... By the time I sold her, she was like 15 feet, you know, and, and they were sort of angry snakes. <laughs> I mean, they, were, they weren't pets. They were like, you know, they were eating all the time. And uh, if I put it down and went to go into my, you know, kitchen to grab something and come back, it's almost like the snake saw me from the first time and would start, you know, snapping, biting at me and stuff. So, yeah, it was just this really weird thing. And so before I knew it, I had uh, I had about 50 snakes. 
uh, after I bred those and I had a bunch of boa constrictors and all this. And I lived in this uh, two-bedroom apartment with a roommate who had another bedroom there. And my room, I lived with like 50 snakes. And I was always cleaning poop and feeding, and, and uh, it got too much at one point, so I sold everything, and I bought a, a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, and I was snake-free for, for many, many years until I had kids, and then we ended up buying a, a snake, which I still have. But anyway, I wanted to tell you that story because it's really, for me, it's about getting over your fears, whatever they are. And just like I was you know, terrified to do my first open mic, uh, I feel like life is about overcoming whatever fears you have. It doesn't matter if it's a food fear or whatever. It's like whatever it is, you know, I always challenge myself to get through that fear. Speaking in public, playing in public. I, I, I almost, I live my life now by feeling I, I need to scare myself all the time. And that's how I think I, I'm growing as, as an artist um, and just a person in general. So that's why I wanted to tell you that, just to talk about fear and, and to embrace it. Uh, fear and failure. That, my friends, is a clinic on how to face your fear. He shows us how we can tackle our fear of, of basically anything. What are you afraid of doing? What are you afraid of trying? Rob's album is called Weathervane, and it's it's, it's a winner. You should check it out if you have an opportunity. And if, if you want to win a free copy, shoot me an email and I'll tell you what to do and how to get one. You can hear this entire episode on uh, Season 2, Episode 30 of the show. Now, let's listen to Luba Dvorak tell us about escaping from the Eastern Bloc in Czechoslovakia. How did you start? Where did you come from? Have you uh, Tell me a little bit about your, your beginning story. Where were you born? Where do you come from? Tell me that stuff, man. Um, okay, so it's a bit of a bit of a thing. I've been everywhere, man. Uh, well, so I was born in a town called Brno in the Czech Republic, which is uh, Czechoslovakia back in the day. Lived there with my parents and my brother till about I was about six when uh, we went on a uh, family vacation and uh, never went back. All so right. Um, yeah, we we basically. Um, you know, escaped the Iron Curtain, so to speak, um, through, we, we went on vacation in uh, what was then Yugoslavia. And, um, you know, me and my brother didn't know, nobody knew, uh, because you couldn't tell anybody anything back then because people would rat you out. That's how crazy stuff was over there. Yeah. Um, your friends, your family, nobody knew. We were just going on vacation. My parents had gone on previous vacations to Western Europe. Uh, but they wouldn't let the kids go. So they kind of kept the kids hostage mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't take off. So they kind of proved themselves, I guess, a few times. And then we got the, the, the permission and the, the papers <laughs> <laughs> to go on vacation in Yugoslavia, which is technically still Eastern Europe. I uh, went down to the ocean, and then we had these stamps in our passports that basically just prevented us from crossing any other borders. Uh, my dad somehow magically erased those stamps. I remember him sitting on the beach doing something in the passports and he was erasing those stamps. And then one night we left through the middle of the night, we crossed uh, in the Austrian Alps and I'm sure it was super tense for my parents. And uh, we got through and then we had some friends on the other side in Austria that helped us. You know, we basically were refugees from Eastern Europe. So went to, lived in a refugee camp uh, for about, I think, six months or something. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. um, it was an old, uh, it was an old army base. So we lived in this giant communal room with a bunch of other families. My mom said it was terrible. 
for me and my brother, it was an adventure, so it was okay for us back then. And How old were you at that, at that point? I was six years old. And then we sort of went through the system, and then they started placing refugees into, um, like, a sponsored uh, housing, which was, uh, you know, pensions and hotels and stuff like that. I, I'm assuming the people that own these properties will get government subsidies from housing refugees. So we, mm -hmm. we ended up in this little town called uh, Lilienfeld in Austria, and it was this small, little, tiny, beautiful, little Heidi-looking town. And we stayed there for, uh, you know, about a year or so. Uh, waiting our paperwork to go to Canada. My dad wanted to end up in Canada, in Vancouver. So long story short, we eventually uh, got to Canada. I think I was seven at that point in around 81. Then we kind of settled there. And, you know, that's where we sort of started our, our new life. You know, as far as I remember, that's, you know, that's always just been the life where I grew up. Um, yeah. My dad was um, a musician as well, fairly well known in sort of the folk scene. Uh, so he had friends uh, always over every weekend. There'd be some sort of jamboree or camping trip where people would be playing. I'd be surrounded by guitars all the time. And that's how I sort of started wanting to, uh, you know, that's how I got addicted to it. Can you imagine leaving everything you know, family, friends, everything? And Luba not only survived, but he found a way to thrive. He found his addiction to live music. In fact, here he is discussing the recording process. The way we record uh, almost er all the time is everybody's set up in the studio. Everybody's playing together live. I'm singing it and playing acoustic live. And everything's with the intention of keeping everything. There's no scratch vocals. There's no this and that. There's no replacing anything. It's, you know, it's, it's the live take. Because I find just certain magic that you capture with a bunch of people playing together in a room. I completely agree with him. It's the live take, the live communication of one's art and soul with another's. There's just nothing like live music, in my opinion. The next closest thing is an album by Luba that was recorded live. American Sin is his latest offering, and if you don't have a copy, I highly recommend you get one. And if you want to win one, shoot me an email. You can listen to Luba's entire conversation on the Plain Ordinary Dragon cast, Season 2, Episode 31. Now, we're going to shift gears just a, a bit, and although our next guest does indeed play music, he hasn't released an album, at least not yet. Let's listen as Eric Schulte talks about the stories we tell ourselves and how powerful they really are. High school, predictably, was pretty terrible for me. So, Was it terrible because of awkward social interaction or was it terrible because school just wasn't your thing? Or, <laughs> You know, it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> so many things are everybody else's fault when you're, when you're younger and then so many things become your own fault by the time you get the sa those same things become your fault by the time you get old enough to realize what was going on. It, it really is. I'll say this. I have, my memories of high school are just of being isolated and, you know, just in these maelstroms of, of turmoil and, and torment. Uh, I, I felt abused by my peers and, and cast out. And I got an invitation to my 20th year high school reunion and I thought, man, I don't want to see these people. These I hated all these people. These people all hated me. But uh, my wife wanted to go. 
and she thought it'd be good. She thought it'd be cool. So we went and I got to my 20 years high school reunion. And to my absolute amazement, nobody remembered that time in my life the same way I did. Everybody unilaterally kept coming up to me and saying, oh man, it's been so long since we've seen you. We always thought you were so cool in high school. Everybody wanted to be your friend. You were such a funny guy. Everybody loved you. And I'm like, who in the hell are you people? And what high school do you think we attended together? Because <laughs> that is the, I, you hated me in high school. They're like, no, I thought you were the coolest, man. I always thought, I wish I could be you. I always looked up to you. This is the kind of thing. These are the kind of things that people were actually saying. These are the people that I would have five minutes before that said that they made a special point to make my life hell in high school. That's quite a difference of perspective. They saw it completely differently. Or now that I look back and realize I saw it completely differently. See, we create our own realities. And the terrible thing about that is that a lot of times we use the worst possible building blocks and the worst possible script writing to build those realities. We create these stories around ourselves that are actually quite a bit worse than what they are. And in some cases, we just completely go off in a direction that nobody even recognizes as as reality to them so these people were just tickled to death to see me after 20 years whereas i thought i'd you know 50 minutes after we got there i wouldn't be able to wait to get out of there it was a really amazing experience it was actually kind of a you talk about turning points that was an interesting turning point in my life because it really taught me how powerful the stories that we tell ourselves really are that is an amazing example of how what we decide in our head to be true isn't usually the case. How powerful are those stories we tell ourselves? They are everything. If you want to change your life, change the way you think. In the final highlight of the Plain Ordinary Dragon cast, the podcast, Eric retells the pivotal moment of transformation where he decided not only what his future would be, but also what it wouldn't be. And yeah, so I was talking indeed. to the, uh, the manager of that diner, and I said, man, you know, I think, I think I'm, really, I'm really digging this technology thing. I said, I wonder if I can make something out of that. And this guy, without batting an eye, says, ah, it'll never happen. So what do you mean that'll never happen? And with kind of one eye thrown back over his shoulder, he says, dude, you're never going to amount to anything. He was the kind of guy that could say something like that, half joking, but half serious. And I'll never know how he really meant that. But the fact is that like a spike driven right straight down through my entire personality, I just immediately, I went home that night after my shift I remember it clearly. I walk into the house and I said, Barb, cut my hair. And I had, I had about two foot, I had about two foot of a two feet of ponytail at that point. I said, cut my hair. I said, I'm done. I said, nobody will ever, ever tell me that again, whether they mean it or not, whether they're joking or not, there is nobody that's ever going to tell me that again. I said, cut my hair. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a job doing something else. And I'm going to, I knew at that point, uh, at least in the near view, what my future is going to look like. And we had, we had a rough night. It was, it's hard to, it's hard to cut off two feet of hair. Unbelievably, it really becomes party and it's, it's hard to transition, but it was, it was another kind of awakening moment for me. We cut off, we cut off my hair and I went in the next day to a friend who cut hair for a living. He kind of helped fix it up a little bit. 
and I went out, I got a job in technology. I never looked back. And 20, 27 odd years later, here we still are. Talk about a life change. Almost 30 years ago, a single choice, a single decision set him on a successful journey in his work life. Do you think your decisions and choices don't make a difference? They do. Do you think you are trapped with no way to have a better journey? You aren't. Read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. You will have a whole new perspective on this point. Eric made a choice and followed the path he wanted to follow. When you make a choice and follow it with relentless effort, there is almost nothing you can't do. But you have to choose. And Eric, you can find Eric's episodes, the, the, the last three of season two. Um, and and you, can, you can find them there and listen to them in their entirety. We talked for a long time, so there, there were quite a few of them. But you can find him 32, 33, and 34. <laughs> there you go. Um, so check those out if you want to. Uh, next week, we'll be back with more fresh interviews. And please sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you can check out the show notes for the link for the, for the newsletter, or you can go to https colon forward slash forward slash plain ordinary dragon.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, and we also included the links in the show notes to all the music and contact info for our guests. Uh, should you want to interface with them or get some of their music, which is wonderful as always, you might be plain and you might be ordinary, but you are a dragon and we can't wait to hear your voice in this world that so badly needs it. Well.